Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome to episode 2 of the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Joe Robinson, and I am joined, as ever, by a man whose excessive consumption of raw courgette reportedly accounts for 90% of central London's vegetable sales. It's James Spender. James, how are you? How is lockdown? How wow, is what, East a, London? what an intro. What an intro. What an intro, Joe. Yeah, you may not know I mean, about James Spender. Thing. Go on, yep. Well, I mean, no, go on. What, 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 what might people not gonna, know about me? I'm just going to say, if, if there's one thing anyone asks me about James Fender is that he eats a lot of raw vegetables. That's... That just makes me sound like the weird kid in school. Is that how you see me in the office, you guys? The weird, weird kid in the office. Well, no, because once, well, like, when when everyone else is having like a packet of crisps or some peanuts, you're just sitting there chomping on a raw courgette or some broccoli. I mean, that's not a bad thing. Nice. but it's delicious. It's, it's notable, delicious, though. I'd... Yeah. How have you been anyway, <laughs> James? Nice how's how's lockdown treating you? How's your East London lock up? Have you been hanging out with the Craze and Barbara Windsor, etc.? Well, the pub that the Craze used to drink in, one of many, has obviously been shut down a long time ago. The Blind Beggar, so I can't yeah. be going there. Uh, the Craze are obviously with us in spirit, but I've been really uh, embracing the ability to go out multiple times in a day, do more riding. So that's been really good. Obviously, it also means you can go out for like walks and stuff. You can mm-hmm. also go out. For, so you can you can just be outside more. And being outside in London right now is really, really, really nice. Like I don't think it will ever be this nice again in my lifetime. And I was really pleased this week to see that Sadiq Khan is taking some steps to close temporarily. Who knows? It could be permanently um, to uh, anything that isn't public transport or cyclists, walkers, whatever. Some fairly arterial roads between mm. some big stations. Uh, He's you know, Carpe Diem, doesn't he? Central in London. Has Sadiq. He's Carpe, Carpe Diem. He has Carpe Diem. He sees Diem. the day yeah. for us cyclists. And, and to be honest, so is... So is Bojo. He's complete. You know, he's he's made some promises that he's going to make this uh, sort of a generation for cycling, which is exciting. I was going to say that I, you know, last week was my birthday, James. I turned twenty six. Uh, in a it strange... was sorry, Joe. Happy birthday, mate. That's fine. That's I just wanted to drop that in there so everyone can send me a card and stuff. Um, turning twenty six, I was a bit sad because I no longer qualify for the Young Riders jersey at a Grand Tour, and obviously it's in lockdown, so you couldn't I couldn't see loved ones and family friends. I did have some time off work and I did manage to watch a lot of uh, A Place in the Sun and Escape to the Country last week, intermingled with plenty of riding like you, James, taking advantage of the Mm -hmm. fact we can go out for for as long as we like. Um, And one thing I noticed from watching A Place in the Sun, James, is that £75,000 gets you an awful long way in the Costa Dorada uh, in the Catalonian region of Spain. Did you know that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so seventy five. There's a couple seventy five grand. They bought a three bedroom yeah. villa with a pool. Admittedly, the pool needed redredging, probably regrouting, and you would have had to do a lot of work inside the house. It was very basic, but I thought for us cyclists that could be a perfect alternative to the annual holiday to somewhere like Mallorca. Because seventy five grand, if you get that on a mortgage, say with your best cycling mate. You can go out there, you'd have, you know, the creature comforts of knowing where everything is. But then I thought, actually, 75 grand is quite a bit of money and you don't get your breakfast made for you in the morning and you don't get fresh sheets. Nope. So then I was like, that's a stupid nope. idea. And then that was the end of that. Let's talk about today's episode, James. So we're going to take a trip to yeah. Bradley Wiggins's big yellow storage in Lancashire as we deep dive into his remarkable memorabilia collection that he featured in the mag a few years ago. But we're going to recall some of the incredible stories that never made the cut in the magazine feature. So there was a lot of things that me and Bradley spoke about 
on the day that never made the final edit and we would love to share with you dear listeners uh, we're going to debate whether box hill is really one of the 100 best climbs in the entire world after we ran our 100 classic climbs campaign on cyclist.co.uk but first we're going to pay homage to the legendary florian schneider That was the unmistakable sounds of 1983 Craftwork hit Tour de France, a seminal tune for cycling and electro fans alike. Born in Germany in 1947, Schneider went on to form Craftwork with Ralph Hütter in 1968, soon becoming one of the most influential music groups of all time. They inspired the likes of Joy Division, New Order and Depeche Mode, and even helped pioneer early hip-hop by inspiring the likes of Africa Bambata. But it was this particular tune, written with lyrics written in homage to Lycra Cad Pelophon, released in 1983, peaking at 22 in the UK charts, that resonates most of us cycling fans, and in particular with a Mr. James Spender. James, you're a massive Kraftwerk fan. Are you a massive Kraftwerk fan because of the song Tour de France, or because you just love German electro? Uh, I'm a massive Kraftwerk fan because there was a kid in my politics A-level class who used to write, who was a German kid called Nils, very Teutonic looking fellow. Not Niels Pollitt, um, um, second place at Marcus Perry Bay. <laughs> Not Niels Pollitt. Neil, Niels Hennes Steer, he was called. And uh, he was really into craft work and used to write their lyrics on his coursework and hand it in, much to the consternation of my uh, of our tutor, of Sue. Yeah. She really didn't like it. But anyway, he, he sort of interested me in it. And there was a song called... Um, pocket calculator which has just got some really funny little lyrics yeah uh, it goes i'm the operator of my pocket calculator and i just thought it was kind of comical to begin with and investigated them more but then came across the tour de france album and it just fell in together with me switching from mountain biking into road cycling yeah. so and the, just the, the, the whole album soundtrack the whole album was a retrospective work wasn't it so that was in 2003 so the original hit the, the single that's right yeah never featured on an album because I think it was it was meant to feature on an album that never got made in the end. So it just got released as a seven-inch single in 83. And then 20 years later, they make the entire album, which is basically the musical... It's like a musical of cycling, isn't it? It's like Yeah, it is like a musical. That's a good way of putting it. It's like a musical three-week grand tour. Mm. It just does really feel like that. It feels like some, some tracks kind of reflect the flat stages... The time trials, and you go into the mountains. It's really, uh, really evocative. The first, but yeah, as you say, it kind of came out, prologue, came out retrospectively. That thirty seconds mm. of just sort of like ethereal, sort of electro sounds. That's not really a tune or music, and it sort of builds up no. as you would, and then it re- relays into the first song on the album, which really, I tell you what, takes off. That always make you know when you see um, riders on the top of the start ramp for the time yeah. trial, and the commentator stood over them in his little pressed white shirt and his tie with his clipboard, and they've got the, one of their um, DSs or whatever holding their holding them by and the seat post. I always watch. imagine that. Yeah, exactly. That massive Tissot watch over the hoardings. I always imagine that 
they've got that tune going through their head, the prologue tune, yeah. the riders. I mean, it's kind of like it's heart with like this like really frenetic thing. But the thing, I mean, but yeah, I mean, you did touch on it there. The album came out in two thousand and three. It was supposed to come out at the Tour de France two thousand and three, which was the hundredth anniversary of the tour. The first edition being held in nineteen oh three. But Kraftwerk are famously incredibly fastidious, and it wasn't ready to their exacting standards, and so it came out a couple of weeks late. But it did become the seminal album. It took them into playing places like the Manchester Velodrome. I think you mentioned this the other day, Joe. I've forgotten about it. They played, they actually played live at a Tour de France, didn't they? So was they it did. 2017, so 20, 2017, the Tour de France started in Dusseldorf in Germany, which is where Schneider is from, where, where Kraftwerk was yep. founded. Um, and obviously, being the massive cycling fans that Kraftwerk are, they were invited along, and I believe that they played the album as a live uh, in full live and they also collaborated with German bike brand Canyon to make some special edition Canyon ultimate bikes with sort of like a Tron paint job um, and there was also a Canyon Speedmax made especially for Tony Martin which he rode on which had that paint job I think you'll remember that from the, the race yeah. one of the most well, I think one of the most beautiful bikes actually that I've ever set my eyes on it's very clinical yeah, it's very cool industrial bike. like Kraftwerk are um it's a cool cool looking bike it does it, it did make me think though again though it does beg the question like what is this obsession that Kraftwerk have with cycling it's a bit like where does cycling and coffee really come from yeah and you do a bit of digging and you know there's just a culture of coffee in Italy and Italy is where cycling is from as well so the two things kind of grow up together Kraftwerk it turns out you know they kind of grew up with cycling they became obsessed with transport in this post-industrial world just after the second world war with uh, east-west um, Germany divided still uh, the rise of things like the autobahn so famously that's one of their songs autobahn it's like 22 minutes long yeah and they loved trains they loved automobiles but they personally really got into cycling uh, Florian uh, Schneider um, yeah god rest his soul and uh, his you know they like the Lennon and McCartney of electronic music so Florian and Ralph Hutter yeah both just really love cycling and I think on the actual album there are samples of them breathing from them doing lab tests of them on themselves <laughs> back in the day um and they famously used to uh take their bikes with them on tour and they'd ask the tour bus driver to drop them off on the outskirts of the city and they'd ride the last 100 kilometers to the tour wow. venue so they were always trying to ride and allegedly florian would, would often rock up to a meeting and he'd be they're just telling you know whoever dissecting the 200 kilometers he'd done that day on his bike so that was apparently you know, a bit like of any consummate tale, pro. I'm sure but yeah exactly and uh, and just uh, to bring the coffee thing in there Florian Schneider apparently gave himself a heart attack from drinking too much coffee having too much caffeine wow. so he's obsessed by coffee as well as cycling he really is the ultimate the archetypal cycling fan slash amateur isn't he yeah he's but, all, um go, I mean, on. I just, go on sorry no 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 after you james um the uh but yeah the the, 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 lo the love affair apparently even extends into the breakdown of the marriage so they parted ways mm. florian and uh ralph Hutter in uh, 2008 so up in was it ceremonious or was it like a Wiggins Froom breakdown? It was. Oh, I think. Well, I mean, I think the history books tell two different stories, but one is of acrimony, 
um, and the spark being them fighting over a track pump. Classic. It's happened to us all. Excellent. Um, So Schneider is arguably probably the coolest celebrity cyclist, would you say? Uh, The coolest celebrity cyclist. He's definitely up there, but there's... I can think of one or two other celebrities what cycle well thankfully that's led me on to the segue of our first quiz of the cyclist magazine podcast james we did promise them in episode one didn't we We did promise that we would do the odd quiz or two i've put one together for you and it's called famous cyclist or not a famous cyclist it's going to be quite simple i'm just going to say a famous celebrity and i want to know if they're a road cyclist or not so if i were to say florian schneider you'd say Ding, road cyclist. I'll, I'll give you another easy example. I'll say someone like Martin Johnson. I definitely know he's a road cyclist. You interviewed him, didn't you? Big exactly. rugby man, obviously. Whereas if I was to say someone like Amanda Holden. Not a celebrity cyclist. Not a celebrity cyclist. And we're going to, this going to be a quick quiz. Play along at home if you're listening. Um, so I'll start off quite easy for you, James. Ben Stiller, comic actor of Dodgeball and... Meet the parents' fame. Is he a celebrity cyclist or not? Mm, he's no, no. You're trying to confuse me with Robin Williams. No, he is a celebrity cyclist. So he what? is actually a really good friend of uh, cycling's old answer to Voldemort, Lance Armstrong. Um, so Ooh. much so. Do you remember actually Armstrong did a cameo in one of Stiller's films, 2004, in Dodgeball? Do you remember that? Did he? Yeah, he did. He, what was he doing as, that? Well, uh, when Vince Vaughan, quickly, I'll go through it quickly. When Vince Vaughan's leaving the tournament because he, he doesn't think he's going to win at the end, uh, he meets Lance Armstrong at the bar and Armstrong tells him about how he got came back from cancer and overcame the odds to win seven tours or six tours at the time. No. Um, but anyway, so Stiller, Stiller was really good friends with Lance Armstrong. And when Armstrong made his big comeback in 2009 at the Tour de France with Astana, Ben Stiller came along to the time trial in Montpellier on stage four and obviously he's a massive he's one mm-hmm. of the biggest actors in the world at this time so they bring him under the the ropes as everyone's warming up outside for the team time trial into Montpellier and everyone sort of gets introduced to Ben Stiller and because he's a, such a class clown he's such a joker he's a card isn't he he gets on to Lance's time trial bike his trek and starts pressing the shifters on his SRAM group set changing up and down the gears pretending to warm up on the roll on the uh, turbo where his bike's set up Lance comes out, finds it hilarious, obviously, because he's such a hoi polloi now. He's not uh, just your regular pro cyclist. Stiller gets off, <laughs> goes away. And um, then Lance goes to warm up, goes to warm up. And as he's cycling, the, the rear derailleur is just making a clunking sound and the bike's making an absolute horrible sound. Lance jumps off, the mechanics take the bike, put it in the motorhome, start adjusting everything, give it back to Lance. He warms up again. He, it's still making this noise. So then they have to take his bike, they swap out the entire bracket, bottom bracket and crank, put on a new rear derailleur, literally within 10 minutes, for then Lance to then get on the bike and warm up just in time for the team time trial. What? Yeah, That's so Ben ridiculous. Stiller almost derailed. If Ben Stiller had broken Lance's bike and Lance had ridden that team time trial broke on a broken bike, lost time and not finished on the podium, in inverted commas, who knows? We may have never found out that Lance was a big doping cheat. Anyway, next one. Wait, that is not... I, we just have to just stop it right there, That's though, because that, that's a go. really good point. Ben there Stiller. Ben Stiller affected 
the course of cycling ben very Stiller. fabric. He did. Yeah. Next up, and we'll move on to another <laughs> massive Hollywood A-lister, and it's Tom Cruise. Now, is Tom Cruise a celebrity cyclist or not? Uh, this is a 50-50 guess, but I just think that he's many things, and yes, one of them could be a celebrity cyclist. Incorrect, James. He's not a celebrity cyclist, but he did... What? He did attend the 2010 Tour de France. So he was on the promotion leg of a film called Night and Day, which is terrible. Don't watch it. With Cameron Diaz, who, by the way, is a celebrity cyclist. Um, the stage went into Bordeaux and part of the promotion, part of the procession was that Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz were there. They stopped uh, halfway along the course, got out, clapped, them, clapped the peloton as they came past. And it led to one of the greatest commentary lines I've ever heard from Gary Imlach. So as the breakaway passed through and passed Cruz and Diaz, Imlach turns and goes... Now, at the side of the road early in the stage, there was one of those annoying blokes who stands outside the Scientology shop on Tottenham Court Road in London trying to lure you in for a personality test. No one was stopping. (laughs) Perfect line from Imlach there. Um... Fast forward Gary, to the end of the stage, well and there's some excellent photos of Tom Cruise, Cameron Diaz, posing with Andy Schleck and Alberto Contador, clearly not having an idea of, um, of any of these people are. Um, but it, it's worth saying that bringing celebrities along to the Tour de France is quite common. If you remember, do you remember the 2014 tour that took place, that started in Yorkshire, Grand Depart, over in the UK? Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, yeah, I mean, because we obviously we decided to get out of uh, the woodwork was Prince William, Princess Kate, and the artist formerly known as Prince Harry. They came along as our big celebrities. But I don't know if they're as good as Cruz and Diaz. So right. we're gonna, we've gone from A-lister in Tom Cruise. We're going to go to a bit more uh, niche, but he's a household name in the UK. Uh, celebrity TV chef and master chef judge. Slash presenter John Tarode, Australian chef, celebrity cyclist or not? Oh, uh, yes, celebrity cyclist. Yeah, he is a celebrity cyclist. Chefs love it. He owns an Ultegra Di2 spec specialized tarmac, it's iridescent green, and has rim brakes. Oh, so good choice. Nice he's Master Chef co-host Greg Wallace, also presenter of the excellent Inside the Factory. Is he a celebrity cyclist or not? Yeah, he thinks bikes are lovely. No, he's not. But, little what? side note, I played rugby with Greg's son, Tom, for quite a few years. Um, and his voice that I was on the telly is put on. He doesn't speak like that in real life. He's got a bit of a geezer accent, but it's not as, you know, oh, God. Not, not as Barrow Boy. No, it's not. Also, little fun, cool, little, little fun fact from behind the curtain is that Wallace and Tarode don't see eye to eye. They're not very friendly with each other. And it's only on a professional basis that they work with each other, that they have a relationship. I would say that's both uh, surprising, sad, but also testament to their professionality that yeah, they can do that because is. they do right. seem to display a kind of affectionate rapport that yeah, um, yeah apparently belies hatred. Exactly. Uh, next up is a two-time Olympic gold medalist Dane Kelly Holmes, celebrity cyclist or not? Uh yeah, I go. I reckon so. Yeah, yeah. Good she's training she's, for she's big into her celebrity, into her cycling. She also owns a specialised tarmac because I once rode a sportif with her, um, and she owns a. She used to also own a cyclist friendly cafe in Hildenbrook, Kent, called the eighteen oh nine, which was the number that she wore in Athens, 
Uh, but that shut down, uh, I think, last year because of financial troubles. Uh, next oh. up is um, legendary television uh, TV presenter Angelica Bell, celebrity cyclist or not? Uh, no. She is a, well. She is a celebrity cyclist. She took part in the uh, single series Tour de Celeb on Channel Five, which it took um, varying celebrities of fame and sort of notoriety, and they completed the 2016 Etape de Tour, which took place from Megève to Morzine and included an ascent of the Chauclin. Hmm. Okay. Um, Fair enough. Next up, yeah, that's, that's uh, lead the lead singer of. The Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger, celebrity cyclist, Mark. Uh, he's he's super ripped and lean. I'm saying yes. He is. He also owned a Condor, which he used to ride around London during the seventies and eighties. Ah, he's there in good go. company. Who, do you know who else? Uh, celebrity celebrity owns a Condor. No, go on. Um, John Snow. As in the newsreader, uh, not yes, the Game of Thrones character. He does, yeah, correct. Well done. There's another celebrity cyclist, a bonus celebrity cyclist. Um, next up is uh, star of West End, Elaine Page. Um, yeah, yes, what? Yeah, throw it out there, yeah. She's not. In fact, she couldn't be more further away from being a celebrity cyclist. She's actually a massive, uh, a very vocal critic of the annual Ride London Sportif as the route passes Pi her West London home and causes her to not be able to get into the central of London on one Sunday a year. Um, she's also very notably called out for cyclists to pay road tax in the past as well. So Elaine Page is quite the opposite of a famous celebrity cyclist. Um, and the last okay. two on our list are Spandau Ballet guitarist, songwriter and founder Gary Kemp and former Arsenal and England right back Lee Dixon. Uh, absolutely. They're like the original proponents of celebrity cyclists. They are the original celebrity cyclists. And also what connects them is that they're both subscribers to Cyclist Magazine, James. Um, if Whoa. you're listening, actually, you know nice. what? Kemp, Dixon, if you're listening, drop us a line at cyclist.dennis.co.uk because we would love to have you both on as guests. I can guarantee they're not listening, but you never know. Joe, I was really, really jealous of you. Issue 81, a couple of years ago, you went to see uh, Bradley Wiggins. None other than Bradley Wiggins, but not just Bradley Wiggins. Sir, Sir Bradley Wiggins his bike to you. collection. Yep. Sir, Sir Bradley Wiggins to, to, to you as well, to you and I. No, we're, 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 on first name, we're on first name terms, so it's just Brad to me. But Bradders, yeah, I did. Bradders, I went, Bradders, I, Bradders I went and saw his bike and jersey slash general memorabilia collection. Yeah, Which sounded, I mean, it looked incredible. It sounded incredible. The one thing that really amused me was uh, finding out where it was because I've got this idea in my head that it's like in some special part of his house or like he's maybe even got like a private space museum that only his friends get to go to. Yeah. But no, Joe, where was the where was the collection housed? It was in a independent storage unit in the north of England. So like a big yellow storage, <laughs> but not. It weren't like yeah. a chain. It was just. Like a bloke called Barry, an old boy from Lancashire on the door, who ran a storage at the back of an industrial estate, and all right, Bradley. Even more north than that, but um, really, yeah, uh, yeah, up, up near um, it was, I, I, I was up near Wigan. I won't give any more away because 
there's a lot of lot of stuff in that storage, and I don't want to be held um, held accountable to anything that could happen. But yet, we did. Me and friend of ours, photographer of Cyclist Magazine, Mike, we travelled up, um, took an absolute mission to get the feature to go ahead. As we both know, James, features can either some features can happen smoothly and easily. This wasn't that. Uh, it took yeah. two impromptu meetings with Wiggins earlier in uh, in the year in 2018 to butter him mm-hmm. up enough to get me an invite. And even then, I had to leverage the fact that he was releasing a book called Icons about his collection um, and use his publisher to to get us a final invite because his uh, personal agent was hell bent on doing everything to make it not happen, as agents do. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. But uh, anyway, yeah. yeah, we'd met. I'd met him a couple of times earlier in the year. We'd spoken. We'd we'd talked about nothing to do with cycling. Actually, both times I met him, uh, spoke a lot about football. He was obsessed with the fact that I was, was a deliberate. Fan. Yeah, deliberate tactic. Deliberate tactic. So, so when yeah. I first met him, it was twenty eighteen. So it was right in the middle of the Jiffy Bag scandal. It's still ongoing, really. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. I, as a journalist, as as you know, in my heart of hearts, I wanted to ask him the hardest in questions. But I realised that one, I'm you know I'm no Matt Lawton from the Times for Move Mail. I'm no uh, Dan Benson of Cycling News. That's I was there on the job of trying to make this feature happen, as it was a feature that we'd wanted to do for cyclists since that predated me, and no one had managed to really get. So instead, we spoke about Liverpool Football Club. We spoke about my passion for West Ham, which he found very amusing. We spoke about West Ham TV on YouTube. We spoke about Wigan, his rugby league team, and my uh, my own relationship with playing rugby as growing up. He had a lot of questions about that, and we spoke nothing to do with cycling. Uh, on the two occasions I saw him, and that basically I think is what earned me an invite to his uh, big yeah. storage up north. And we went along, and mm-hmm. we we recorded. We, we you know we we captured one of the probably one of the best features, if I do so so myself, that we've had in the magazine. I'd say because of the exclusivity of it. And uh, well, certainly a really interesting one because for anyone that hasn't seen it, can you describe the sort of stuff that he had in there just in general? Oh, it was, it, there was everything. So, so in the in the feature, we had everything from a nineteen forty nine yellow jersey as worn by Fausto Coppi. We had a Colnago uh, Titanio split down tube uh, road bike raced on by Franco Ballerini. There was a time trial bike ridden by Miguel Indran. There's there was a whole Tupperware box, a whole plastic um, container filled with Lance Armstrong jerseys. There was a couple of bits from Wiggins' own career. It was literally like uh, a toy shop for cycling fans, really. It was incredible. Yeah, some of the stuff he had in there. I mean, that uh, Indurain bike yeah. was was so beautiful. So it's a Pinarello Low Pro with the 650B front wheel back in the day where you could have two different size wheels. Yeah. And the, you know, the size of that thing. With the specially yeah, the made Campag the... uh, crank crank arms of 180 mil. Um, That's right, for Big Meek. And the drop big... is insane. The drop is drop insane. Between the... yeah. And it's an incredible piece of kit, not least because it's just such a beautiful bike from a time where bike design was probably its most interesting. But also, it's from the 1992 Tour de Romandie, which isn't like, it's not one of these like Tour de France bikes or his hour record bike. But the issue is is that Miguel Indran is 
really well known for keeping of all his, his own stuff. So getting hold yeah, of anything, right. any bike to do with Indran is really hard to come by. And Wiggins explained that a lot of his stuff he gets given, he gets gifted by people that he either raced with or people know that he's into collecting memorabilia and it sort of entrust him to look after stuff. And he, But he had to actually buy that off of some bloke in Spain because he just couldn't get hold of really? anything to do with Indran. Yeah, he's got a couple of Indran's jerseys that I think he's been gifted, but in terms of that bike, he actually mm. had to go and purchase it. And it's one of the few things in his collections, I think, that he actually went out and bought with his own money. Um, a lot of the stuff, it was just sort of given to him because people know that he collects memorabilia and that he will look after it. Um, a notable right. one is there's um, a woman got in touch with Wiggins a good few years ago now and basically said, my dad's best man at his wedding was Tom Simpson. And I've got his bowler hat. I've got his top hat from the day. Do you want it? And Wiggins was like, yeah, of course. She was like, well, I because I have nothing, I have nowhere to keep it really and I know that you'll look after it and I know that you're a big fan of Tom Simpson. So he's got stuff like that, which is really incredible actually um wow. beyond just like cycling jerseys yeah yeah um, that's cool but there was also there's also quite a few bits that never made the feature that i think are really interesting that we should talk about james if i'm honest okay go on then so prime yep. amongst them all was there wasn't that many bikes there was a there was a bmc that belonged to philip gilbert that he raced in an amstel gold there was a couple of Wiggins' own bikes. There was a Pinarello tra- track bike from the 2016 Ghent Six Day. The one that really caught my eye, and we couldn't actually feature in the magazine, so a little bit of a, a scoop here, was Wiggins had his 2012 time trial bike that he won Olympic gold on in London. Wow, so we oh, all, yeah, I remember that. We oh. all remember. We go mania, sideburns, cutouts in the newspaper of his face, him doing the peace signs on a throne outside Hampton Court. Uh, he just won the Tour de France, became the first Brit ever to win win yellow. Was now the nation's sort of darling, wasn't he? He was sort of the a knight incarnate, and he comes back. Yeah, he wins gold in the time trial, and he does it on a special bike. So, despite being a Team Sky rider, he didn't do it on a Team Sky Pinarello, did he? He did it on a UK sports bike. It did. It looked really different, didn't it? It did. It was unmarked. So, it was unmarked, all black, very small. I remember mm. I remember looking at it and going, "This bike looks tiny for a man who's six foot four. Um, but do you know what? Do you do you know the background behind UK Sports at all, James? Uh, I know that there's involvement with uh, Chris Boardman at some right. point. Wasn't yeah, there? So it was uh... called the. They called it the Secret Squirrel Club, which was basically an R and D team, which was led by Boardman, that wanted to basically try and which designed all the equipment that was used during those boom days of track cycling from Beijing in 2008, basically through to Rio in 2016. And they pumped millions and millions of pounds into the track system, into developing new bikes, more aero equipment. And one of the things that came out of it was this time trial bike that Wiggins raced on. It's a great effect in London, Mm. Um, which is really... I'm looking at it now. Yeah. I'm looking at it now. I haven't... Yeah, just revisiting it with me eyes and uh i mean if there was ever a bike where the seat post is actually longer than the seat tube (laughs) (laughs) this is it yeah that's how small the front triangle is it's incredible like it looks it could be it could almost be a kid's bmx yeah with 700c wheels and even the, uh, the and the handlebars are next level like they look 
the handlebars look like they've been stolen from the future, mm. uh, but like a really bad sci-fi version of the future. They are ugly, but they were obviously slippery. Yeah, and I mean they were incredible. It was an incredibly effective bike, and there was only I believe a couple mm. made. And the best thing about the story I find is that so Wiggins basically said, "Look, I I wouldn't I'd prefer you not to feature this bike, but I'm going to talk about it now." Is because he's not actually meant to have that bike. So when they got when he crossed the line, and obviously had won Olympic gold, the team the bike got put back on the team car, got taken away. And um, it was meant to go back to UK Cycling in Manchester because it was a pro. It was a prototype. It was a. It wasn't. A, you know, there hadn't been thousands of made. But Wiggins was like, "I'm no way am I giving away the bike that I've just won Olympic gold on in London, in my hometown." So he just took it. He just put it in his own car <laughs> and drove home and and never answered any emails going, "Oh, Brad, have you got that bike?" And he still has it to this day. Um, and wow, and I, I guess now they've, they've probably forgotten about it, and I'm not too concerned about him having it. But I don't know, cheeky monkey. It was because there's a lot cheeky, of, like you said. Also, public money, kind of, because a lot <laughs> of that uh, BC trap program was um, all British cycling is funded by the lottery, which is supposed to be this kind of big redistribution of public wealth, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, that's how a lottery works. And I, remember, I was speaking to someone the other day, like there was, although the cost per unit of a bike like that probably isn't insane you know 10 i mean it's a lot of money but 10 or fifteen thousand pounds worth of sort of stuff on it in it whatever manufacturing time mm. it's the r&d that goes into it and uh this um so it's an old old physio that used to work for bc that was i was talking to said they developed a handlebar not dissimilar to the one on this bike uh that cost two hundred thousand pounds the development Jeez. of this handlebar yeah and they never used it because it just didn't <laughs> test that well Love and that, that was the sort of money they were willing to throw wow. at projects like this. So you can only imagine provenance of this bike aside, it must have cost a flipping fortune yeah, to create. And definitely. as you say, like you pointed out, only a couple made. Uh, he was the only one that got it on the BC team. Is that right? Yeah, Froome so rode the normal, Froome rode just a Pinarello yeah. PT bike, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then that was it. Never, you know, he Wiggins stole one. The other two are someone in someone's shed somewhere. Chris yeah. Bourbon's probably got one. Yeah. And yeah, that was probably a million pound project right there. Definitely. Um, but I mean... But it won gold. It won gold. It so it's gold. Worth, it won gold. worth the money. But the, do, you want, do you want to know the one person whose stuff he didn't have that's going to shock uh, you? I want to guess. I can't even think. Who? Who? So so he's got these... So, you know, he's got his copies jerseys. He's got his Mercs, Oncotils. Doesn't have anything by Bernard Hino. <laughs> doesn't have a single jersey what, what what's and what's his what's his beef with bernie exactly so i was like obviously i wanted to complete the circle of like okay i've got all these i, I had all the the five-time winners of the tours jerseys i was like oh have you got one by hino and he's like nah i don't really like him <laughs> and i was like okay and it, and it turns out that wiggins just maybe not the man but i i just didn't i don't think he appreciates the rider as much as he does someone like injuran or or Merckx. And so, therefore, he's never really actively taken any of his collection. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, do you want to know what Wiggins smells like as well, James? Yeah, go on, tell me. So, he smells like quite soapy and not in the like the London way of describing someone as soapy in terms of dirty. More like he smelled detergent-y, he smelled nice and he had a little hint of aftershave, but not overwhelming, not like Z-neck Steve bar levels of aftershave where it burns your nostrils. <laughs> 
It's interesting you say that because I was really struck when the first interviews I did was with Miguel Indurain after off the back of the sportive. Yeah. And he was a ve- he's a very soapy smelling man. And I noticed that about certain I think it's yeah, I think it's Spanish <laughs> Spanish cyclists are very soapy smelling, but in a kind of nice way, but like yeah. a bit like your gran. Tom Boonen knocking about art like he's just finished a ride and he's put on his tracksuit and he's doing a round table discussion at a training camp. He's a bit of a Stebar thing. Actually, at the time, he's on the same team as Stebar, so maybe it's a, a Belgian thing. But he, yeah, quick, he, a quick like, step thing. he could knock, he could, he could knock birds out of trees at fifty paces with the amount of aftershave <laughs> he was wearing. But he smelt, he smelt good. Yeah, and he was a very. I've got to doff my cap to uh, to Boone, and he was an incredibly uh, genial fellow. He's a great, yeah, great uh, prof- consummate professional. A bit like Wiggins, I think. Who, the who's the best smelling cyclist you've f- ever met? Best smelling cyclist I've ever met. Uh, that's a good question. That's a really good question. I'll, I... tell, I'll tell you mine while you're deliberating. In mine was uh, Kern Pacourt, the veteran Trek Segafredo rider. I met him at the Tour de France uh-huh. last year in Belgium mm-hmm. before the Grand Depart. And genuinely, it was so deliciously musky in such a subtle way that I was really getting myself, I was really finding myself drawn into his neck while interviewing him. (laughs) (laughs) But he was was by by far the best smelling cyclist I've ever met. Nice. Well, Cavendish springs to mind, not because he smells good, but Cavendish smells or smelt when I met him a bit like the kid at school whose mum uses too much laundry detergent. Yeah. And then Tony, Tony Martin seem to have kind of no smell in a way that I imagine he also might have no reflection. Uh, and I was know, really close to him because he was leaning right forward and really breathing heavily and he had no no discernible breath smell. Do you know Tony Martin answers the phone? Hello, Tony Martin. That's a <laughs> that's true fact. That's a, I love There's a true fact. I've rung him twice in my life for interviews, both times. Hello, Tony Martin. So recently, to celebrate turning 100 issues old for Cyclist Magazine, we decided to delve into the archives and look at some of the greatest climbs that we've ticked off in our many big ride sporties, big ride extras. Uh, We've got an absolute treasure trove we had to pick from, and we wanted to decide which were the 100 greatest climbs that we've taken on as a magazine. Um, And we put it out on the website, and and it was received incredibly well. We were so happy with how it went, and we basically enlisted a couple of climbs. Uh, well, we, we said that the Paso de Stelvio is the greatest climb of all time. On the podium was also Mont Blanc 2 and the Galibier. But as and the is, and the Telegraph, slash Telegraph, of course, you know, two climbs for yep, one, yep. like Fish and Chips and Shearer and Sutton. But as what we what we wanted to basically was to get people talking about what their favourite climb is, and basically to have a little bit of an argument about our list because who doesn't love arguing about lists? Um, yeah, exactly. And the one that I'm going to throw at you straight away, James, bang, 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 straight off the bat, was we put in the Box Hill, the, the Surrey's answers to Alp Duez in at number 100, and it got so much Ooh, controversy, so much so that one man got panned. One person, yeah, one person tweeted. Um, this seemed like a good concept, but when I saw Box Hill was in at number 100, I immediately switched off. Um, I'd say that that, that, <laughs> that person probably needs to change their approach to things. 
because if you're getting put off by the first one of anything, then there's, <laughs> you're never going to find out about you like the so many wonderful things in life. Yeah, whether you like, like, like the, the podcast. Yeah, but I, I, a bit, yeah, a bit like the podcast. Let's hope you've listened to episode two at least. Um, but uh, on some level, I kind of agree with that in as much as it does annoy me how much of a destination Box Hill is and how, and it makes me a bit sad because I think there's a lot of people that spend a lot of money and time on their cycling for whom Box Hill is the kind of zenith of where they take their bike. Yeah. And that's partly circumstantial. We can't all travel. I mean, it's, it's not know, even the best climb out of Dorking, if we're honest. Randmore Commons no, is the better no, climb. No, no, But yeah. the, it's just the fact that it's so... We put it in there. We, you know, I'll let you into a little secret of how we created the list, listener. We asked all of the editorial team at Cyclist to pop in to a spreadsheet the climbs in which they think should have been in the 100 greatest climbs. And there was a massive long list. And then we basically argued for a few days over what we thought the number, the top 10 should be and where we think others should sort of reside. And there was an overwhelming sense that while Box Hill isn't, one, isn't really a climb, it's a speed bump, as we're often reminded, especially by people that live up north. And that, which is fair enough, because it isn't that hard. And that it's actually very busy. We thought that for a climb that's got 100,000 people having attempted it on Strava is annually in the Ride London Sportive and is kind of like the mecca for any cyclist based in the biggest city in the UK. We kind of couldn't leave it out. Um, Yeah. I would suggest it's the only climb in the UK that has got its own specific Tour de France level graffiti on it. As in, uh, it was oh, put no. there not only by fans but also by oh, the, by, um, by the national by the council. Trust. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, because there's yeah, a couple that's, up that's north. Cool pattern on it. Yeah, like butter tubs up north had um, loads of people who were in Spain tuft on it for when the tour went there in 2014. Yeah. But that was done obviously by by spectators rather than the, the local council. Um, but you, James, yeah. you weren't taken by Box Hill being on there. There was another British climb that you couldn't understand that was on the list. Am I right? Yeah, I mean, Box Hill, take it or leave it, whatever. But Cheddar Gorge, I don't even really, I've, and I've ridden Cheddar Gorge as well, I don't even really consider it a climb. And Ooh. it's snuck in somewhere in the, you know, the top 70-ish, maybe. And, okay, technically, it goes up at either end because it's a gorge, and that's how gorges work. But I don't think that makes it a climb. <laughs> it's that. basically like, I call it the I call it a lull. It's a lull road because it goes down and then up again, as opposed to up and then down again and it's just really i mean it can be really beautiful there if you get up super early in the morning and avoid the tourists but as soon as it passes about eight thirty, the buses start running the cars start coming yeah and it's just a, a beautiful road that's overrun with traffic and yeah again i just call it a road not a climb so i wasn't impressed by that one did argue my case but got shouted yeah down. i mean our editor pete muir is a massive cheese fan so that's why it featured um we also and he should, eats a lot. Eat, yeah, we should also underline the fact that we got some stick because we didn't put in Monte's Oncolon. And I have to admit that, that ah, was... Ah, now this was the one, wasn't it? Yeah. So when we finished off the list, there was lots of people going, where's Monte's Oncolon? Where's Monte's Oncolon? We got a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of uh, stick online. Fair enough. Admittedly, it was human error. We just forgot about it. It was on the long list. We'd had a long week. We'd been in lockdown and we just forgot that Monte's Oncolon wasn't in the list anywhere, which then saw us 
two days before we released the po- the top three, having a Malcolm Tucker esque thicker zip breakdown via video link, where we was all blaming one another for leaving <laughs> out what is basically probably the hardest climb in Europe, one of the most infamous climbs of the Giro d'Italia in the last sort of twenty years, and just completely missing it in place of Cheddar Gorge. <laughs> Um, yeah. um, so we do apologise for that and the other one that really grow, grow, like got people going was the fact that we put Cap de Formentor um, one, because we said that Cap de Formentor was a worse climb than Sacalobra and two, people were just really not happy that we put Cap de Formentor in, like, in front of the likes of the Gavia um, yeah, yeah, yeah so we should just, um, just point out that uh, just in case you don't know because I didn't know all this before I started cycling Zonkalon uh, is in northern Italy. Yeah, um, sorry. And yep. then Cap de Formentor is Majorca, right? So Majorca is obviously famous uh, for the Sacalobra. Yeah. But the other one that everyone loves is this climb up to the lighthouse. Yeah, Cap de Formentor. So sorry, Joe, carry on. But arguably, I mean, Cap de Formentor is no more of a climb than Box Hill. It's just a road that happens to go up. And like Box Hill, is fraught with coaches taking tourists to the top and cars so unless you go at six o'clock in the morning it isn't great but we've learned mm. from experience that Formentor is probably one of the most popular climbs in the entire world and a mecca for european cyclists looking for sunnier climates in march time i mean it is like yeah just like a lot of the roads in mallorca it's a beautiful surface yeah it's a really really pretty place to be I mean, once you're kind of at the top and you can just like look out to look out to the mountains, the sea, to, it's it's very, it's just, it is lovely. But again, I, it's kind of ruined by traffic. But also, let's be honest, cyclists are kind of traffic too. So we can't absolve ourselves of responsibility entirely. That's true. But yeah, like the Sacalobra. Don't throw, you go, don't throw I, I was lucky enough to do the Sacalobra. No, don't. It's really, really quite dangerous. But yeah, I was, I was lucky enough to do the Sacalobra as a closed road sportive once. And goodness me, if it was fantastic just being yeah. up there. Because it was basically a time trial, uphill time trial. Just you on the mountain. It was absolutely beautiful. Excellent. But if you had, uh, you took those three out of the equation, right? So not the Stelvio, not the um, Philippe Telegraph and not Von 2. Where would you... What would be on your podium, do you think, of rides that you've, well, done, I, rides I, that you've done, Joe? I think we all decided that leaving the Tourmalet out of the podium was really tough. So I've never actually ridden the Tourmalet, but just the amount of history associated with that climb would suggest that it was it was, it was was a tough call not to put it in the top three. And it did come fourth, but I think mm-hmm. the Tourmalet is an incredible climb with so much history and, and it is beautiful. Uh, for me, I'd also on the podium, if those three weren't existing, I, I think that Monte Grappa is one of the most stunning climbs in the world that has so much history. Absolutely, another northern Italian one. Another, another uh, just outside of a, a town called Bassano del Grappa, beautiful part of yep. northern Italy where it's a really, it's a long, tough climb where you kind of climb up to like a plateau and there's so much history that's not just cycling. There's a lot of you know, there's a lot of associations with war and there's plenty of battles that took place in, in the world wars that took place on Monte Grappa. And that would probably be in the top three for me. And then number three for me would probably be, 
I love the Angerloo. I've never ridden it. Again, I've never ridden it, but I like climbs mm-hmm. that have just obliterated professional races in the past. So that's in Spain, isn't it? Angerloo? Yeah, that's in the uh, very in the Cambrian Mountains up in the north of Spain. And the, it's the one of them ones. I love, sort of... yeah, I love a climb, which is ironic because we forgot the Zonkland. I like a climb that really humbles a professional cyclist. And the Angerloo is one of them. Yeah, I mean, people have pushed up there, haven't they? Mm. In pro races, it's been people have been pushing their bikes up there. Not necessarily because it's too steep to ride, but there's a point where it's almost too steep to get back on. And if there's a bottleneck or if it's slippery, yeah, then you kind of you're screwed. You haven't got the traction. You just can't you can't get started again because it's it's pitching up at twenty nearly twenty four percent. Yeah, it gets up. It's twenty five percent. Yeah, there's a, there's some some meaty bits. What about you though, James? What do you have top three? If you can have the top three. Mm. Uh, I'm going to go in reverse order just to make it really exciting. Ooh. So I'll go with Monte at number three as well, just like you. Yeah. And at number three, Monte Grappa. Uh, it's 19K long, so that's a decent innings, 8.1% average, and it takes you up to 1,700, 1,800 metres. So it's just got all of those things. It ticks those boxes. It's got It's also length, worth noting. Steepness. But it also... It's one of yeah. them Italian climbs that you can do earlier in the year as well because it doesn't go that high. Whereas like the Gavia and the Stelvio... You're struggling to do it unless that it's like the true. middle of like it's like late June yeah. to to July. Yeah. Whereas because you can even, not even as then high. you can get unlucky, can't you? The weather's yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Whereas yeah, Grappa, yeah. No, that's, that's you can you can you can you could probably go and tick off Grappa in early May if you're lucky. It might be a bit it'll be yeah. very cold at the top, but the road should be all right. Yeah. In at yeah, number no, I two, think, I think you're right. For you though, James. Um, in at number two is. This is uh, this is a tough one. So I think probably on balance it's going to be the Furka Pass. Yeah. I re- also was considering the Isuard in France, which is just a really beautiful climb. Yeah. Um, Eddie Isard's brother, which is in the Eddie Isard's favourite climb. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And then the Velafique, which is in the Tabernas Desert um, near where Sergio Leone used to shoot spaghetti westerns mm. in the nineteen uh, sixties in so in in Spain. And that's a lovely, really uh, desolate road. Lots of switchbacks, beautiful. But anyway, Furka Pass, because that part, or just Switzerland in general, you just look around and everything is above two thousand meters mm. mountain wise. It is absolutely everything's like, also so pristine, striking, pristine road everywhere you go. Yeah, lovely, it quiet. It looks like where the evil. Go on. Lovely, yeah, I was going to say it's also really quiet lovely, because quiet. a lot of the times have had. Uh, <laughs> tunnels built parallel to them so you can sort of go through the mountains as opposed as opposed to over them that's it that's it they become kind of um so they say a lot of these climbs become sort of like uh tourism attractions more than transport links so the Furka pass um coming up from oberwald on one side um and going over to real uh is just it just looks like where the evil villain would live in a disney film it's just snowy jaggedy barren but also just like searingly beautiful kind of intoxicating it's got this crazy it's got this brilliant hotel on it as well hotel belvedere which is another famous hotel you'd recognize it looks like something out of a wes anderson film it's now shut yeah again it highlights those days where you had to have hotels on long roads because motor cars were just basically rubbish and they needed their air, you know, their their oil filled, their water, their radiator filled, and the airs. They needed the to have. Up. And they needed also, to take a break, have a Kit Kat, and yeah, they needed somewhere did. to so stay. So people had to stop on roads. Yeah, so there's a lot of you'll notice that if you go to Switzerland, because it was a big. It's always been a rich country, and it was a big uh, motoring mecca. 
So you've got these incredible roads and these abandoned hotels because when cars got better, people didn't need to stop. And so the hotels just died in their ass. Lovely. Um, hey, Rian, can you um, not saw wood in there, whatever you're doing? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> mate. <laughs> Okay, you through the wall. Sorry, dude. I know you're trying to make breakfast and that. <laughs> By soaring wood. Yeah, I think so. Uh, that's life in lockdown in the podcast world is you've obviously got to share a space. So my housemate's being really very generous with his time and his space and he's leaving me to it to do this. But I could just hear him making breakfast through the wall. But anyway, anyway. Uh, Furka Pass. But the cool thing about the Furka Pass is it featured in um, James Bond and it's that scene in Goldfinger where Bond has got his little kind of uh, shredders that have come out of the hubcaps on his DB5 and he's chasing this girl and he wants her to pull over so instead of doing the decent thing and just tooting his horn which he does a bit he just goes up to her and slashes her tyres as she's driving and nearly causes a very horrendous accident classic Connery yeah classic Connery gets out and looks at the car and goes oh goodness me a double blowout (laughs) and they kind of proceed to be friends I mean he's chasing Goldfinger ironically he then Um, did when he raced Goldfinger up the mountain on uh, a bicycle and Goldfinger both of his his 19 mil both of Goldfinger's tubeless blue a double blowout because he's a big lad with Goldfinger yeah Yeah. But anyway, that's a stunning road. The problem with Switzerland is it's just quite expensive to be there, but we'll put that one aside. But then I think all-time greatest experience climbing was the Alto de Letras, yeah, which is uh, nearly 81 kilometers long. Yeah, it bills itself as the longest climb in the world, which by my reckoning is true only if you consider it a the longest paved climb because there is a longer climb in uh, Manukia. Mm. Monaco, is that how you say on the, it? On in, the, big, uh, in Hawaii, the big island in Hawaii, yeah, yeah. The big island, uh, which our um, digital editor Peter Stewart wrote, and there's a big stretch of that that's gravel. That's 92 kilometers long, starts at sea level and goes up to 4,192 meters, I think. Which Rather is than me, I'll tell you that. Yeah, <laughs> whereas Alto de Letras, a mere 81 kilometers all uphill, average 4%, oh. so it's never steep. But what I basically found a road really bump. That's like it was that's like Box Hill. It's like the, they call it the Box Hill of Columbia. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. they think it's they they poo poo it. It's not it's nothing to them. But it goes up to the highest I've ever been that wasn't an aeroplane, three thousand six hundred fifty meters. Wow! And just that last six hundred fifty meters ascent was just incredible. Like it was like someone had just pulled the corks out of the bottom of my legs. And just drained all of, not just all of the energy, but all of the fluid, all of the water, all of the blood, all of the motivation and any of the joy had just gone because of the lack of oxygen. It's just really, really incredible how that shift uh, in altitude changes. So that, yeah, that would be my my top one mm. would be Alto de Letras in Colombia. But um, there are a couple that I'd love to do. And I think one of them was the same for you as the Trollstigen yes. in Norway. Yeah, definitely would like to go out to Norway and do it. The only issue is with Norway is that it rains something silly like 364 days a year. So getting it on a good day is, is a tough one to call. And like mm. Switzerland, Norway is it's true. astronomically expensive. So you basically have to remortgage your house to buy a coffee. Um, and that's coming from someone yeah. who's lived in London all their life. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but they, they take it to a whole new level. No, they really do. They really do. That's, I mean, that's that's a place where it's a tenner for a beer, like a bottle. 
mm. standard in a restaurant. Oh, I know you're right. I've never ever I've never been so cold. Never ever been so cold as riding a sportive in Norway. And on that, fjords, and it and just I, rained. I'm going to say on that. that on that very cold, expensive note, James. Let's bring episode two of the yes. Cyclist Magazine podcast to a finish. Listeners, yep. thank you for Let's joining us again. Do subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify. Leave us a review. What I want you to do as well, if you're a listener and you know of a celebrity cyclist, do give us a leave it in the comments because we want to know. Um, and if you've just got any interesting facts about celebrities and cycling, we also want to know. So leave us a review. Leave us a comment with that. Make sure you give us a star rating and we'll be back in two weeks' time, probably still in lockdown of some form, with episode three. That's right. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for joining us and thanks for the chat, Joe. And uh, Kemp and Dixon. Kemp and Dixon. Hope you're listening. Get in touch. Get in touch.